Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Our favorite historical novelist is back. Dr. June Hall McCash, the founding mother of the University Honors Program, has written Eleanor's Daughter, a novel of Marie de Champagne. It's about one of the daughters of Eleanor of Aquitaine and King Louis VII of France. It's also about sexism, primogeniture, and life in France in the 12th century. The Fleur de Lis will be on display after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. 73 of MTSU's brightest students are now members of the university's most prestigious honor society. Phi Kappa Phi conducted its fall 2019 initiation ceremony on November 12th in the Student Union Ballroom. To be eligible, juniors must have completed at least 72 credit hours with at least 24 semester hours at their current institution and rank scholastically in the top 7.5% of the class. Seniors must also have completed at least 90 credit hours with at least 24 semester hours at their current institution and rank in the top 10% of their class. Graduate students also must rank in the top 10% of their class and have completed at least 18 graduate hours or the equivalent at their institution. And photos that showcase human resiliency in the wake of catastrophes are the focus of a new exhibit by artist, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and MTSU alum Jeremy Cowart at the university's celebrated Baldwin Photographic Gallery. The exhibit will be open to the public through Friday, January 31st at the Baldwin Gallery, located in room 269 of the Bragg Media and Entertainment Building. Among those photos are images and stories from the deadly 2016 Great Smoky Mountains wildfires gathered for the Voices of Gatlinburg Awareness and Fundraising Project, and a similar effort for the Never Forgotten Coast Project, which chronicles the destruction and rejuvenation of Mexico Beach, Florida, in the wake of 2018's Hurricane Michael. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Welcome back, June. Thank you, Jenna. The Lion in the Lion in Winter, which is one of my favorite films. Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine tells her three sons by Henry II of England, if I had managed sons for Louis, her prior husband, instead of all those little girls, I'd still be stuck with being queen of France, and we should not have known each other. Such, my angels, is the role of sex in history. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> she is quite it's accurate. quite true, yes. Well, one of those little girls is Marie. Yes. So who is she? Well, she was the oldest daughter, the first child. They had been married. Eleanor and Louis VII had been married for seven years, and she had not given birth. And finally, she encounters, and this is a true incident. It's based on chronicle evidence. She encountered Bernard of Clairvaux at the re Restoration celebration of Saint-Denis, and asked him to pray for her to have a, 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 a child, and of course she meant a boy. Mm -hmm. And he finally agreed, but they kind of negotiated a bit, and he was the person who 
said to her, well, yes, I'll do that, but I need you to do me a favor. Yes. <laughs> and what her favor was. I've heard that line somewhere before. <laughs> yes, it's, it's currently in the news. Yes. But what the favor he wanted was for her to pray for peace, or not to pray for peace, but negotiate uh, a peace agreement between her husband and Thibaut de Champagne, who was an arch rival at the time. He was the Count of Champagne. And so they came to peace and a child was born. However, it wasn't a boy. It was a girl. And, and they were so age. disappointed. Well, yes. That was the, ex everyone expected a son, an heir. Although Marie did not rule France, she was in charge of a substantial amount of territory. Yes, she was. As a matter of fact, more than her first husband was, because the kingdom of France was actually quite small at the time. And the, the the county of Champagne, which was the area that she on which she served as regent, while both her husband and son uh, were on uh, crusade, and she served for nearly twenty years, was larger than the kingdom of France at the time. And how did she administer her duties? Uh, how would you assess her as a, a, a power broker and an administer of territory? Well, evidently quite capably because she, as I say, she was regent for more than, well, for almost 20 years. And she didn't lose a, an acre of land the whole time, which is quite unusual because there was, of course, resistance. If she wound up at one point, Marie did, wound up at one point at war with her, her brother, Philip Augustus, mm -hmm. and he was in alliance with her other brothers uh, from England. Uh, she didn't win that war, mm -hmm. but she didn't lose it either. I mean, it was one of those kind of pieces that was entre famille, shall we say. <laughs> How was she at negotiating internal politics, making sure that people were not trying to undermine her within her own orbit? And they were. Uh, there were people who refused to pay the same kind of tolls, for example, at places that they had paid it for her husband, they didn't want to pay, or they didn't want to pay as much because she was a woman and so forth. She had them arrested at one point, and uh, she absolutely was determined this was not going to happen. She was well aware of the misogynistic tendencies of the period. She was extremely aware of that, as we see, I think, in, in some of the literature that she sponsored. But she was quite capable of managing her own affairs. She did once appeal to her father. Uh, she wrote him actually two letters that we have that we have still preserved, and in one she's complaining about his men refusing to pay the tax at a place called Coulomiere. She had to deal with it, not him, because he was quite ill at the time, and he apparently paid her a little mind. She managed, and she managed to negotiate her own future. Once her husband died, uh, she was able to determine whether or not she would marry again. Most of the time. Uh, noble women would have been under the control of brother, father, whatever, and he would have found her a new husband. But Marie chose not to remarry, as did her successor, and both lived with a great deal more freedom, uh, a great deal more um, ability to rule on their own than they would have had they married again. We'll take a break here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. 
I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of Fire. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Expanding Your Horizons is an annual hands-on science and math conference for middle and high school girls. EYH enables girls to investigate careers in science and math and to talk with female leaders in those fields that are so essential to our nation's future. EYH also provides the girls with fun, hands-on activities and allows them to meet girls with similar interests. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, EYH Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The book is Eleanor's Daughter, a novel of Marie de Champagne, written by Dr. June Hall McCash, uh, who uh, was the very first person in charge of our university honors program here before it actually became a university honors college, which it eventually did. And the novel has received a good review, a rave, I'd understand, in historical novels review which is available both in your uh, better academic libraries and online at historicalnovelsociety.org. What role did religion play in Marie's life? Well, religion played a great deal of role, a great role in everybody's life in the 12th century. And uh, the Catholic Church, of course, was dominant. It was indeed. And of course, her father was under. I won't say the control, but his closest advisors were both churchmen. One was Bernard of Clairvaux. The other was uh, the the abbot of Saint-Denis, Suger. Suger was the practical man who thought that, you know, you ought to do what's best for the kingdom. uh, While Bernard of Clairvaux was kind of the purest, you do what's right with God. Mm -hmm. And so when Suger died, that's when Eleanor Marie's mother was able finally to divorce her husband because Suger wanted to hold on to Aquitaine, which was a very powerful area in France, a very rich area. Yeah, Henry coveted that too. Right, and it went with Eleanor, (laughs) so to speak. In terms of, of Marie's life, Bernard was responsible for her marriage to Henry of Champagne. He was the person who negotiated that. One has to understand that there was a big feud between Marie's father and the man who would become her father-in-law. When the father-in-law, that this was what created the feud in the first place that caused Marie ultimately to be born, assuming yes. it was the result of the miracle of Bernard of Clairvaux. And so as the miracle child of Bernard of Clairvaux, he thought it might be a really great idea to seal this pact by having Louis's daughter marry Thibault's son. And so this was negotiated under him. Thomas Beckett, I think probably visited their court. He does in my book, in any case. But he was take. He was certainly um, given refuge in Champagne uh, during his exile from England. We just know that there was, you know, Marie had her own her own chapel, a very large one, bigger than the cathedral, as a matter of fact, that her husband had built, and there were always clergymen surrounding her. So that she had clergymen as advisors, the famous Andreas Capellanos, who that name may not mean much to a lot of listeners, but he wrote a book called The Art of Courtly Love. That book uh, was presumably uh, written uh, at possibly at Marie's court, but certainly by a man who served for about six years at her court. Mm-hmm. And Andreas Capellanos means Andre the chaplain. 
Speaking of courtly love, uh, how did Marie use her sex appeal, since that's just about all that women had going for them in that era? Again, I think it was the influence of her mother, but she learned very young that courtly love is a concept that has a certain appeal for young men, especially. Uh, it's it's kind of lessons on you know how to win a lady and so forth. But it also teaches young men good manners, how to behave at court, just generally how to how to not be warriors all the time, but how to be courtiers. And so this was a very big aspect, I think, of the of the whole notion of courtly love. I interpret as really kind of a courtly game. Mm-hmm. That they played in which lovers so, or would be lovers mm-hmm. ask questions for a lady to answer. It's always the lady who is in charge. Mm-hmm. Always the lady who answers. Mm-hmm. And so this this was a way they had of refining young men mm-hmm. and making them into something other than they had been in the earlier period, which was basically warriors. This is sort of the rules of engagement for flirtation, <laughs> right? Yes, yes, absolutely. To to gain a lady's favor, mm-hmm. of course, you had to have good manners. Right. You had to be clean and proper. You had to do all these certain appropriate things. If you had to be civilized, if you came on like a ruffian, <laughs> you were going to just totally hack the woman off and turn she was off. going to ignore absolutely. you. To put yeah. it in modern terms, you would turn her off. Yeah. And so this was lessons in how to do that. And I think it, it it really had a huge impact. And if you look at the, what the whole notion of courtly love, it came into favor when the men were mostly away on crusades and the ladies are at court. The ladies are in charge. Mm-hmm. And so here's a good time to take care of this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it had an enormous impact as we moved from a a heroic, what they called a heroic culture, Mm-hmm. into, in the 12th century, a courtly culture. Mm-hmm. It seems as though I always ask you this, but how would you destru- describe the combination of historical fact and fictional license in your novel? Well, I think historical novelists disagree on this. I'm one of the people who likes to rely on the historical record. I do not make it up. Uh, everything in my book is based either on a document or an interpretation of a document or et cetera. I mean, obviously, I make up the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I don't know what happened in every interpersonal relationship. But what you have to do as a historical novel is bring life to those dry documents that we have from the past. It's very difficult, especially in the medieval period, because there is so few there are so few documents about women or written by women there are some but they are few and far between for example we think we know a lot about Eleanor of Aquitaine but there are relatively few compared to the documents that talk about her husband and her sons they're relatively few that are about her we know a little bit more because of the crusade chronicles and because of her misbehavior uh-huh. uh, and and quarrels with with King Louis during the Crusades, which I ex- I talk about a little bit in my book. I think you need a really good justification to divert from historical truth. I I try to stay with it, and obviously I make logical inferences. I draw logical conclusions about relationships among people mm-hmm. when I don't have an a, a hard copy in front of me of a chronicle 
or a charter or a letter or something of the sort. Most of the characters are real people. The geopolitical boundaries of the nations are accurate. The costumes are accurate. The representation of the culture Absolutely. is accurate. Every uh, circumstance in which you place these historical characters who are real people is accurate. But as for their interactions, of course, since you were not there and there was no video or audio right. taping going on, one has to imagine that. There are disagreements, uh, scholarly disagreements, about the interpretation of certain concepts and certain ideas and certain events. But I don't rely on anything that hasn't either been published by, by me in a scholarly journal or someone else, mm -hmm. uh, except for those personal interpretations and conversations and that sort of thing, which you have to have to make the book palatable for the modern reader and, and for the general reader. And someone who is, you know, in, it likes to take an intelligent flight of fancy. They're not ever going to read those dry documents. No. So I'm hoping they'll learn from reading my, my book. What made you gravitate toward Marie? I find her mother to be fascinating. Maybe it's my obsession with the lion in winter. I don't know. But uh, it seems as though she inherited some of her mother's grit. Oh, I think she definitely inherited much from her mother. Uh, there are scholars who who complain or who complain who, who proclaim that the two never met one another again. Uh, I have written several articles about this, and I think there's a great deal of uh, evidence to suggest that they did, and that their their families did interact to some extent. Marie was clearly a friend of Eleanor's sons. I mean, we do have interaction among them. There are several logical times that she might have visited Eleanor's court or Eleanor might have visited her court. It's interesting to note that Mar that Eleanor's son, Richard, married Marie's son, uh, Thibault. This is Richard the Lionhearted? Yes. Okay. Yes. And he married Berengaria of Navarre, or Berengela as she was known at the time, uh, and Thibault married Blanche, or Blanca, as she would have been known in Spain. And so how, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Is it just coincidence? I think not. I mean, I think there are reasons to uh, to infer, at least, that there was some consideration of the interrelationship and so forth. Uh, I think, too, the uh, whole notion of courtly love was something that grew at Eleanor's court, it grew out of the south of France, and it was not popular in northern France until Marie began to promote the courts of love and others in her in her entourage. Um, and I think this is a very pretty strong evidence that the two women somehow exchanged ideas, encountered one another. And there's the perfect time for that, because in 1173, we have a situation in which Eleanor's sons are rebelling against their father. They need allies. Well, one of their allies is Marie's husband. Well, so the men are off in Normandy and England fighting these wars. What are the ladies doing? Well, it seems to me the perfect time for Marie to have visited her mother's court and to have learned about these ideas that she brings back to northern France and begins to encourage and spread in, into that area. So that is a logical deduction to, to take from the facts that we know on the ground. 
Well, I hope it is. That's certainly my deduction. <laughs> and and I have argued this point in an in a academic article um, some years ago in in a very prestigious uh, medieval journal called Speculum, which was uh, published in in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. so forth. Well, if you'd like to learn how to write historical novels, June will be teaching a course that will instruct you in how to proceed in the spring, and we'll talk about that when we return. This is MTSU on the Record. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. This is Jean Nagy, Department of Art. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. The Concrete Industry Management Program at MTSU fills the need for trained personnel who know concrete technology and techniques. Our alumni go into the marketplace grounded in basic math and science and able to promote products or services related to the industry. Our participation in the academic common market ensures talented students in other states a chance to enroll on an in-state tuition basis. This is Dr. Heather Brown, director of the program. To find out more information on this or other university programs, visit mtsunews.com. We're talking about, or rather, we're talking with Dr. June Hall McCash, who uh, was the first person in charge of our university honors program. She's written a book called Eleanor's Daughter, a novel of Marie de Champagne, which is an historical novel. Uh, That is the genre in which June specializes. And she will be teaching a spring 2020 semester course on writing historical fiction. What are some of the key pointers you'd like your students to grasp? Well, I I want them to know that writing historical fiction is not something you make up out of whole cloth. Mm -hmm. Just because you happen to think Eleanor of Aquitaine is a really keen lady, Mm -hmm. you can't just make up her life story. You do have to do the historical research. I think that's very important. And I think all really good historical fiction writers do do that. Just like any good, really good actor who is going to play a real person, someone either dead or alive who's actually lived in real time, will do research on that individual. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's exceedingly important to know your topic inside and out. Uh, It's also very important, I think, to understand that writing historical fiction is a way to bring history to a more general public in a in a way that they will enjoy, in a way that they will find uh, pleasant to read, uh, thought-provoking, um, not dull, dry, boring, or anything like that. I think you've got to you've got to have lots of real life in there, and it's important not to just know the historical documents, but to know what people wore, to know what people ate, had glasses been invented by then, uh, you know, what kind of shoes did people wear, those kinds of things, and uh, you know, what was their attitude toward children, what was their attitude toward women, mm-hmm. or their ancestors, or whatever, and. Uh, I think uh, I think I've just been reading another book by Jean Owl, who wrote uh, the the Clan of the Cave Bear. I'm sure many readers have read that. It's, it's an old book now, but I'm reading one of her later books, or I had just finished one, and she's done enormous research uh, 
for for all of the information she gives us. Sometimes I think she gives us too much, and you have to eventually draw back. You can't just overwhelm the reader with details that, that probably don't interest them. And as a scholar, this is part of my problem. I want to tell them too much, you know? Uh-huh. But you don't want it to end up like a T.S. Eliot poem. Like you, <laughs> you have to go through to the footnotes of the wasteland <laughs> right. in order to understand what the heck's going on Well, that's here. one of the things I love about historical fiction. No footnotes. <laughs> I always do add an author's afterword in which I do talk about my sources and if I've invented any people, which ones are real and which ones aren't. This book, Eleanor's Daughter, is pretty much everybody in it is real with the exception of maybe a maid or a footman or something like that. But most of the characters, uh, even the stewards and so forth, I have their names in records. Yeah. So so that's that's getting down to the nitty as well exactly. as the gritty. What criteria will your students be obligated to uh, fulfill? Well, first of all, is an honors course. Mm-hmm. So they have to be in the honors college. It's only a one core, one credit course, but they they just need to to. It, actually, the course is already full. I'm afraid. Yeah, but there is a waiting list. Doctor Vile tells me so. Uh, it you do need to be interested in writing and historical fiction, and willing to do the work. Does the fact that it's already full mean that you'd be willing to teach this on a regular basis? I mean, you are a professor emerita. Yes, I am. (laughs) Which means that you're retired officially. Yes, I am officially retired, and I'm loving it, (laughs) because now I can write all these books. Do you think there's room in the MTSU curriculum for someone to teach this course on a regular basis? Uh, Yes, perhaps. Uh, I think, I think, Creative writing is probably taught, I don't know the curricula right now in the English department, but I suspect it's it's taught, some is, some writing, not specifically writing historical fiction is taught there. But I think this will most likely be my last time to do this class because I'm, I'm really enjoying my writing so very much. But I did enjoy, I've done it once before, and Dr. Vile, I did it last spring, and Dr. Vile asked me to come back and do it again because apparently the course uh, was very well received and uh i have agreed to do it at least one more time <laughs> <laughs> thank you for doing so well i'm enjoying it the book is called eleanor's daughter a novel of marie de champagne by dr june hall mccash thanks june thank you so much jenna it's been a pleasure same here we'll be right back The Middle Tennessee State University Women's Studies Research Series features compelling monthly talks on gender-related topics by faculty and graduate students. The series offers a chance to learn about research in progress and to chat with faculty in an informal setting. All lectures are free and open to the public and are held on the MTSU campus. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte Gross, WISE advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. 
Gina Fan has the middle moment. Dr. Katie Schrote, a professor in MTSU's College of Education, is working to keep the spirit of giving alive year-round by sharing the gift of literacy with very young readers and their families. With a new grant from the First Book Program and help from community literacy partners, as many as 10,000 children in Murfreesboro and Metro Nashville schools will be holding a brand new book of their very own and seeing their own faces and families in the pages. First Book is a nonprofit, and they really seek to close the achievement gap for students of low-income families. The reason they're called First Book is they hope to be a child's first book. And when I open a box from First Book, it's my breath is taken away because of the art. They'll feel the same way, when, and then they get to own that and keep it. And not just like any book, but a brand new, award-winning, culturally relevant book that can be theirs. The reason culturally sustaining books are important for kids is we call them when and mirrors and we want kids to be able to see themselves in a book like a mirror but we also want kids to be able to see other cultures and become more empathetic toward people who don't necessarily look like them. That's MTSU on the record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University is produced by the university's marketing and communications office which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.